This is the uh, third week in a series that we've entitled Sacred, hence the, the overgrown uh, attempt at a stained glass backdrop. Uh, that's why that is here, celebrating uh, sacred, looking back into church history at some of the traditions that have lasted for over two millennia. How could something that is so sacred, so powerful, so meaning, how could it be so much so that people would be committed not to let it die through the course of 2,000 years of history? Are these sacred traditions simply relics of the past? Or is there certain power within them that provides victory for our lives today? This morning, I want us to ask those questions of the Lord's Supper. I want to ask the question about the communion. Why do we do it? I mean, I know that Jesus said to do it, and I know that He said that every time we're doing it, it is a memorial in honor of His death, so that we would never forget the cross. But is that all it is? Is taking of the cup and the bread simply a ceremony, a memorial of the Lord's death? Is it possible that coming to the Lord's table and taking of the bread and the cup means so much more than just a memorial to the Lord's death? I want you to look with me, the 26th chapter of the book of Matthew. And usually when a pastor is talking about communion, he begins right away in verse 26. Matthew 26, 26, and talks about the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to back up a few verses because I really believe that if we can better understand the context of the Last Supper, which is the First Communion, then we can better understand the sacredness of this Christian tradition that has meant so much to so many for so long. And I pray that it wouldn't just be a habitual routine that brings you to do this today because everybody does it. But I pray that by the time we come to the close of this sermon and you come to the table, that there is a sense of significance and sacredness that has never been there before you before. Matthew twenty six seventeen. The first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, He said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to Him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. And Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you do not mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. Verse 26, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and gave it to His disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is My body. Then He took a cup, and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in My Father's kingdom. 
When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the time of year on the hills of Easter that a lot of attention has been placed on the cross and the resurrection. And it should be. It's right. But we need to understand before there was ever a cross and before there was ever an empty tomb, there was a cup and there was a broken bread that was shared at a table. And I think, in my opinion, one of the reasons that most of America does not get it when it comes to biblical Christianity is because we as believers have not taken time to understand the significance of what it means when we take the cup. A few years ago, on Easter Sunday, some of you will remember that the entire backdrop of this platform was a recreation of da Vinci's famous painting of the Last Supper. But instead of having images painted on the canvas, there were live actors that were frozen in place in the exact spots that da Vinci had painted them. I don't believe in the accuracy of da Vinci's famous painting of the Last Supper, but it was probably the most recognizable image of the Last Supper, so we used it as a backdrop. It was wrong because da Vinci painted the Last Supper and through the eyes of an Italian Renaissance artist culture 14 generations or 14 centuries after the actual event of the Last Supper. And it reveals more of da Vinci's culture than it does biblical accuracy. For example... Da Vinci painted the wrong menu. In Da Vinci's painting, there are fishes and loaves on the table for the meal. But if you read the biblical account, this was a Passover meal. When the disciples came into the meal, the story that I read to you, they were looking for a place for Jesus to celebrate the Passover, which is one of the highest and holiest days in the Jewish calendar. It celebrated the deliverance of the nation of Israel from Egyptian bondage, and the meal they always ate at the Passover was lamb, ceremonial of the Passover lamb that was given uh, that God had provided there in the book of Exodus and that they celebrated each Passover meal. So it wouldn't have been loaves and fish. So the menu was wrong, but also it was the wrong time of day. In the biblical setting, the Last Supper took place in the night. It was dark with the full moon outside. But if you look at da Vinci's painting, it is an Italian brunch on a bright sunny day. And then it's the wrong table. It's this nice long rectangular table that makes good for the portrait or the painting. But the table they would have been sitting at that day was a lowered triangular table where they would have actually been seated or reclining, according to Scripture, on the floor as they do in many Middle Eastern and Asian cultures. And then the fourth thing, it was the wrong order. The painting shows, based on the images we get in Scripture, we we see a different backdrop of of where the disciples literally would have been gathered around the table. But the reason we picked it then, and the reason I refer to it today, is because it is probably the most notable image of the Last Supper. When people think of the Last Supper, and they've seen that image, it often is what comes to their mind. One man said, it was artistically a masterpiece, but it was a masterpiece out of place. Because the the Lord's Supper is more than just a group of guys getting together to have a meal. It was the Passover meal, the holiest day in Jewish tradition. It celebrated every year at the same time to commemorate God's deliverance of the Jews from Egypt. And every part of the meal is ceremonial. From the eating of the lamb to the various spices of the lamb to the various cups that they would drink as a part of that meal. It, it, it is a, is a, I've, I've been to one, I've sat down with a Jewish family and had a Passover meal and every little thing is sacred. And Jesus chooses this all-important of Jewish holidays to reveal something profoundly new. 
it takes uh, the moment like this for this revolutionary idea that Jesus is trying to establish to be conveyed. He takes the cup of wine, which was very normal during the Passover meal, and he holds it up, and he begins to talk about a new covenant that is going to be established by his death through his blood. And what he said about that cup, and what he said about the broken bread, and what he said about the new covenant, initiated a revolution that night that has been going on for 2,000 years. I want to talk more about the revolution that started on that evening in just a little bit. But first of all, I want you to spend a little time getting to meet the men who actually sat around the table and drank from the cup and took of the bread that night. I want you to hear their stories. I want you to stick with me because it would be really easy for you to check out while I'm going through this historical data wanting to know why in the world is pastor spending so much time talking about these men when the message today is on the sacredness of communion. Because in order for you to understand the power that is in the ceremonial meal of communion, you have to know what went on in the men's lives that were invited to the first one. And you have to know what the cup meant at the first one. If we've been doing this for 2,000 years, are we truly getting the significance of why the meal was called together in the first place? John MacArthur in his book, Twelve Ordinary Men, introduces you to the founders of the Christian faith. And he spends a lot of time detailing the lives of these men that, that started it all. And, and, and when he does, he reveals a lot of their flaws and reveals a lot of their failures because the objective is for us to see them for what they really are. They are no different than us. Matter of fact, if you look at the men who were seated around the table at the Last Supper, you can probably find a personality type or a characteristic trait that is very similar to many of us in this room because they were so varied, they were so different that God pulled people to establish His kingdom that were just like us. MacArthur says that they were common men with an uncommon calling. If you've ever traveled much or been in any great cathedrals, especially in Europe, you would probably assume by the statues and the pictures there that the apostles are larger-than-life stained glass heroes with shining halos who represent an exalted degree of spirituality. The fact is, they weren't. They were very, very common men. And it's kind of a shame that these men have been put on such high Uh, platforms that we see them in marble figures and portrayed in paintings like they're some kind of Roman God when they were just 12 completely ordinary men, perfectly human and frail in every way. If we lose touch with who they were, we will alienate the chance that God would want to use us in the same way and we cannot see the significance in the Lord's Supper. The way the institutional church has canonized these original 12 disciples and actually dehumanized them in the process makes them seem remote and otherworldly. And it's really ironic because when Jesus chose them, He didn't select them because they were extraordinary. He didn't select them because they had some kind of spiritual superiority. He selected them for the, very, the only notable trait they shared in common. And that was their ordinariness. What qualified these men to be founders of Christianity was not because they were the gifted and talented. There was nothing intrinsically outstanding about their own ability. They were Galileans. Galileans were deemed low class, rural, uneducated people. They were commoners. They were nobodies. But again, that's the very reason that He chose them. They, didn't, they were not distinguished or talented above anybody else. 
The point that God made in choosing these men is that there are no intrinsically qualified people. No one is born qualified. God Himself must save sinners. God Himself must sanctify them. And God must transform them through the power of His grace from the unqualified to instruments that He can use. The twelve were like the rest of us unworthy and unqualified. And they didn't rise to the heights of usefulness because they were somehow different from us. They were transformed by the grace of God into vessels of honor. Many of us get discouraged today when our spiritual lives suffer failure or we go through a season of persecution or suffering or even sin and we tend to feel like we're worthless nobodies and if left to ourselves, we are. But worthless nobodies are just the kind of people that God has chosen to use because in reality, that's all He has to work with. And His grace infuses us and the revolution begins in our heart to make the name of Jesus famous around the globe. Look at the lives of these 12 men. They were amazingly varied in their personalities and their interest. The four that are always mentioned together, Simon Peter, Andrew, James, and John. That's what is known as the inner circle. They were all four fishermen. They were two sets of brothers. They came from the same community. They were apparently friends for a long time. You've got Matthew who is a tax collector. And you've got these guys who are fishermen and all of these various and some unknown occupations. They had vastly different personalities. The Apostle Peter was aggressive. He was eager. He was bold. He was outspoken. Peter's life motto is this, ready, shoot, aim. He was bold. He was brash. He always had a habit of opening his mouth while his brain was still in neutral. And he's been referred to as the apostle with a foot-shaped mouth. John, on the other hand, was very quiet. He spoke very little. In the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts, he is the apostle Peter's traveling companion. And not one time in the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts is any word ever recorded that John spoke. And isn't it amazing that when he started pairing up men to go out and do the ministry, he chose one with a foot-shaped mouth and one that didn't say a whole lot. And then it goes even further than that. The ironic pairing of opposites says something about the nature of God. I mean, you have Bartholomew, who is also known as Nathaniel. I mean, he's a true believer, openly confessing faith in Christ, quick to have faith, quick to speak it out. And you often see him compared with Thomas, who is known as the doubter, who was an outspoken skeptic and wanted proof for everything. And then you have the political opposites. Matthew was a former tax collector, one of the most hated men of his day because he was employed by the Roman government to extort money from his own people, the Jews, to pay for the Roman occupation of Israel. I mean, the Jews hated him. But with that, in the twelve was also the lesser known Simon of the bunch. He was known as Simon the Zealot. And you have to understand, tax collectors and zealots did not do life together. They were an outlaw. The zealots were an outlaw political party who took the hatred of Rome to an extreme measure and they conspired to overthrow Roman rule. They assassinated people. They used sabotage to advance their political agendas. And zealots were known to kill people they perceived as political enemies. People like tax collectors. It's amazing that you have in the twelve... Matthew, a tax collector, 
former tax collector, and Simon, a former zealot, which would have been a biblical terrorist in the way that we know terrorists today. And the fact that they're saved and serving God in that context is a statement of the grace of God, of who He went after to establish His kingdom. But the fact that they are together, unified around a common cause, says something about what happens when we come to the Lord's table. In a lot of congregations, they have what is known as the common cup. And when people come and take the bread and the cup, they all drink out of the same cup. And the common cup is supposed to portray the oneness, the commonality, the connection, the the bond that we share as a family around our faith in Christ. At North Place, we divide the common cup. Everybody has their own individual cup. But it is connected to the commonality of the cup. Most of the places that use the common cup have real wine. We use juice. If we were going to use a common cup, I would want real wine too. I want something to kill the germs when everybody else drinks out of the cup. You understand? We divide the cup. And you have your own private cup. But in reality, it is a small picture of the cup that was served that night. And we are taking it together. Because there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And there is no bond greater than the bond we share. It is greater than anything else in this world. The bond that we share in Christ. At the first Lord's Supper, you see that transforming power of grace and that common bond between political differences and personality differences. And in this room, it's represented here today in this room, our paths are so different. I can tell you stories of people who have come out of sexual sin and the sex industry who serve today and you would never know that because they don't want you to know their stories because you're afraid you look down on them. But God doesn't look down on them. Their lives are changed. And then there are people that have been in church all of their life that have been saved by the grace of God and we're worshiping together in the same place in the same way. Ethnic differences and cultural differences, educational differences and income levels all gathering around the common cup, bond together in our faith in Christ. One of the lesser disciples, or what lesser known, actually has that in his name, James the Lesser. And they say he was either young or of small stature, um, but he may have been young, quiet, and small, all three of them. But he's representative of the little known people that get very little attention, that do great things for God. And then you have a well-known man, Judas, who's a traitor, There's something we learn in the Scripture about Judas' life. Two things I'm going to share and then move on. It is entirely possible to be near Christ and still be totally hardened by sin. There are people that said, if I could have just been there when He was there, this could have been more real to me if I'd have been alive 2,000 years ago. I could have seen it, tasted it, touched it. Judas did all of that. And being near to Christ didn't change the fact that his heart was still hardened by sin. But it also says something to us. No sinful person, no matter how evil they may be, can, no matter how hard they try, can thwart God's purpose in our world, in our life. Sin may be present, but the sovereignty of God is still in control. No matter how sinful God, or or, or how sinful Judas was, God still used Judas's sinful ways to inevitably accomplish his eternal purposes. God is still in control. And I love the message that God sends to us in the way that He chooses the leader of the group. It won't be on your screen, but in Matthew chapter 10, verse number 2, it says, Now the names of the twelve apostles are these, first Simon Peter. The word first in the Greek is protos. And it doesn't mean first in line, it means leader or chief of the group. And the fact that God chose Peter 
to be the leader of the group speaks to, as a leader who knows my frailties more than everybody, when I read the life of Peter, I'm like, okay, if God can use the Apostle Peter, He can use me. There's so much grace in the fact that he chose Peter to be the leader of the group. I mean, it's an amazing story. He knew Peter's frailty. He knew that he was eager, a ready-shoot-aim uh, mindset and mentality. And yet, in all of his omniscience, knowing all of that, by his grace, he still pulled Peter. None of these men were a scholar. None of them were orators. None of them were theologians. Their natural talents and intellectual abilities are in no way outstanding. They were prone to failure, but none more than the Apostle Peter who was the leader. Jesus even stated in Luke chapter 24 that these men were slow learners and spiritually dense. Doesn't that make you feel better? (laughs) And yet after a little more than 18 months of training, they changed the world. It's obvious that their success cannot be attributed to them, but to the power of grace working in them. It's the way God works, choosing frail vessels to display His glory. Can you imagine the conversation that had to go on in heaven? I mean, the angels have been a witness to this since the beginning of time with Adam and Eve and how that... You know, went wrong and Jesus promised a Redeemer in Genesis 3.15 and, and now the Redeemer has come. He's been born as a baby and He's, he's about to die and God's going to lay the, the, the whole message of this so that the world can know upon these 12 fragile shoulders and as the plans are being made in heaven, can you imagine the boldest angel kind of tapping on God's shoulder and say, um, have you thought this through? This whole thing we've been watching unfold for thousands and thousands and thousands and eons and eons of time. We've been waiting on the entire world to be impacted by this message and you're going to entrust it to those men? Okay, if that's what you want to do and this is plan A, then what's plan B for when they mess up? And can you imagine the silence in heaven that day when he said, there is no plan B. This is it. And we're living here today because those frail men as frail as they may have been, transformed by the grace of God, perpetuated this message till it got to America in 2012. And it is us to keep coming to the same table, committing ourselves to the same revolution, that should the Lord tarry, generations in front of us have the opportunity to hear the same message we hear right now. Can, can you just journey with me? Because the intrigue of their lives really doesn't say as much to us as the power behind their deaths. I mean, these men had ridden Jesus to the heights of popularity. They've gone from nobodies to superstars overnight. In a matter of a few months, He's healed the sick, and and, and now they've been empowered to do the same, and, and people are getting healed when they pray for them. And the Bible says their popularity had risen to such an all-time high, they didn't even have time to eat lunch. They literally had to hide themselves in order to be able to eat lunch because the crowds were thronging to them. Now, Jesus' popularity is waning. 
and the crowds have, that have just recently cried Hosanna and waved palm branches are now singing a different song. In a matter of a few days, he has gone from hero to villain and their popularity has plummeted with them. Their lives are in jeopardy along with his. They're guilty by association and that's the reason he brought them into this room. The man that took them to the top of the world could now cost them their lives. And he called this supper to explain to them the horror of the days ahead. He wanted to check their pulse. This meal was called to determine if the followers were in it for convenience or were they in this thing for commitment. Drinking the cup that night was going to tell whether they were all in or in Judas's case, they were all in only for themselves. Imagine with me the price those men paid to eat at the table. We have the privilege of looking back on that first supper, known as the Last Supper. It was the first communion. We have the privilege of hindsight, knowing that those men were signing a contract. Jesus is explaining them the details of what it's going to take to follow Him. And now with history as our friend, the historical records prove those men knew what they were getting into when they took that revolutionary cup and ate of that revolutionary bread that night. Simon the Zealot was crucified like Jesus with nails in his hands and feet. Jude, also known as Thaddeus, died on a cross. Matthew was slain with a pickaxe in Ephesus. Philip was scourged and imprisoned afterwards, stoned to death. James the Great was beheaded. Thomas was murdered by an enraged idol priest and rammed through with a spear. John was boiled in a pot of hot oil and somehow survived it and was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. Simon Peter was condemned to death by Nero and crucified upside down. Judas betrayed the Lord and a few hours later hung himself in shame. For Judas, Jesus was never about commitment. He was only with Jesus when it had something to offer him. When it was going to cost him something, he was out. Andrew, it says that he died on an X-shaped cross. James the Lesser was stoned and then beaten to death with a fuller's club, which is a hammer that has grooved iron on the side. Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, was literally filleted alive and then crucified with his head facing down. Now with that information, looking back, grasp the significance of that supper. Jesus gathered those frail men who were about to suffer and die for their faith to explain to them the purpose of His death and what it might cost them to be His follower. To drink that cup meant they signed on to a commitment to follow Him no matter what. And the band of brothers, this band of ordinary average men committed to Jesus but also to each other all the way to the end. One of the greatest testimonies of the divinity of Christ and the truth of the resurrection is that these men who knew Him firsthand gave their lives for Him. Because it's kind of hard to believe that men would die for what they knew to be a lie. According to the Bible, God is so holy that He needed to join our hearts together. And that's why there's a cross. We've studied it over the last several weeks. We implore you on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God, 2 Corinthians 5.20. For our sake, 
He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. It was my cross, it was your cross, and He substituted Himself, took my iniquity upon Him, He took my place, embraced my death, and gave me His righteousness. Jesus understood all of this. The Last Supper was called to make sure all of these men understood all of this. You remember that revolutionary idea? I told you He set out to start that night. That challenge that night He gave those men when He held that cup in His hand was a challenge to a new radical level of commitment. A new radical level of community that few of us understand. I want you to say this with me. Two things I want us to get before we come to the table. Would you say the word commitment? Say that. And say community. Two words that don't commonly exist because we look at this meal as a memorial and we forget the cup we take is a cup of commitment and the bread we take is the bread of community. He said the bread was a symbol of the body that would be broken for us, but there's another symbol of the bread in the Bible. The body of Christ is known as the church. It's us. It's the community of faith. The bread in the Last Supper and the bread at every communion is a symbol of our connection to each other. Not just to God, but our community, our togetherness, our bond. That oneness that is shared between a pauper and a prince. Or that oneness that places a redeemed prison inmate who has come to faith in an incarceration, in a, an incarceration and yet is following in discipleship with God in prison. He's going to come and take the cup today as a part of His worship. And as a pastor, I'm going to come and take the cup and while we may be worlds apart and people look at us completely different there is a bond I share with that prisoner that is stronger than any bond in the world it is a bond around the grace of Jesus Christ and I commit myself to him at the same time I commit myself to Christ I commit myself to you when I take the bread at the same time as I commit myself to Christ By taking the bread, these men were not just committing themselves to God, but to each other. There was a bond shared around that table. And in the early days of Christianity that has been lost in the modern setting, in a nation that celebrates the individual, and in churches that celebrate the individual, we come and we take communion, and it's all about personal reflection and personal response, and we forget that when we take that bread, we're inviting other believers that are present into our lives. It's a communal thing of coming together Jesus was saying I'm going to be leaving here in a few days you're not going to have me you're going to need each other you can't make it by yourself I've had soldiers tell me and they know much more about it than I do that when you fight in a foxhole with somebody and you risk your lives for the same cause there's a bond that is shared that cannot be recreated anywhere else When I come to the table today, I'm saying the same thing to that revolutionary idea of following Christ that these men were saying. And if you're saying the same thing with me, there is a bond that connects us. Because when somebody is willing to die for the same cause, the life that is in their living is a connection that nobody else can ever understand. When he said, take the bread, he was teaching them about true Christian community. And if the bread symbolizes community then the cup symbolizes commitment. Inside that cup was the wine. It was a symbol of His blood that He would pay the ultimate price to spill. 
He was inviting them to join Him on an adventure. One that would lead to His death and inevitably theirs. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, their mother came to Jesus and said, Jesus, she was a zealous mother, why don't you let one of my boys sit on the right hand of the kingdom and one of my boys sit on the left hand in the kingdom? And Jesus said, woman, you don't know what you ask. Because in order for them to go where I'm going, they got a drink of the cup that I drink of. And he was talking about the cup of suffering and the cup of death. It was a cup of commitment. To drink the cup says, God, I'm all in. There's no more playing games, no more half-heartedness. I'm in. I'm pushing all my chips to the center of the table. You can have all of me. When a policeman is going through academy or when a soldier is going through boot camp, there's a moment when among the veterans they are seen as one of them. When you come to the table, that's not something unbelievers do. Coming to the communion cup, that's not something people who don't believe in Christ do. When you come to the table, you're saying, for every one of you that have this cup in your hand, For every one of you that have bread and the other, I'm in this with you. Through the suffering, through the persecution, through the heartache, through the trial, come what may, we are in this together. Community and commitment. That was the moment for the original twelve. Most Americans understand the cross, but we have failed to understand the cup. We can't get in a time machine today and go back but we can extend the table to you this morning. And that's what happens every time we come to the Lord's table. What happened that evening is extended to us, and Jesus is extending the same cup, the same invitation to be a part of this revolution, that the glory of God would cover the whole earth. And I ask you what He had to ask them that night. Now that you know what it's going to cost, this is not just comfort and convenience. There's a cross here, and it may cost you something. Are you still in? Are you with me? And 11 of those 12 proved it with their lives. Now, we extend that same table. Are you in it with us? Are you in it to the commitment? Are you in it to the level of committing to God and each other? The bread of community and the cup of commitment. Service host, would you come and help us today? I'm going to ask if you would to begin to serve the communion elements and as they prepare to serve let me tell you this we don't practice a closed communion here what that means is you don't have to be a member of our church we have an open communion which means if you're a Christ follower then you take a cup go ahead ladies and gentlemen just help us serve today if you're not a Christ follower and you want to be when that cup comes by you take it because we're going to pray in just a moment and you can surrender your life to Christ If you're a believer today who's out of fellowship with God because of a grudge or unforgiveness or bitterness and there's something in your life that you need to deal with and you don't want to deal with it, then let the cup go by. But if you want to get that cup under the mercy and transformational power of the grace of God, then take the cup because we're about to pray a prayer of surrender to God to transform us by His grace. Go ahead. To each other. This is a commitment to each other and to Him. I want you to hold on to these as you get them. And listen, even if you're not a believer, take this and hold it. If you sense God calling you into relationship with Jesus, I'm going to pray a prayer with you in a moment. 
I'm going to pray a prayer for all of us in a moment. I'm going to encourage you to commit your hearts to Him fully. One of the greatest things you could ever do as a first act of faith as a believer is to come to the table and say, Lord, I commit myself to what these people have committed themselves to. To You and to the cause of carrying the cross around the world. The bread of community and the cup of commitment. This... These two elements symbolize a revolution that started 2,000 years ago. Yes, it's a memorial of Jesus' death. But it's a present day invitation. Are you all in? Is this just some religious deal you go through every time we do it? Or are you all in? Paul said to the Corinthian church, When you take these things, let a man examine himself. Examine your commitment. Examine your heart. Your heart for each other as much as your heart for God. Don't let this be just some individual thing between you and Jesus. It is that. But it's between you and your brother too. Are you committed to each other as much as you're committed to Jesus? I have to ask myself, am I committed to you as much as I'm committed to Him? Because that's what he was asking them on that first communion. The last supper. Search our hearts, Lord Jesus. Search our hearts, Lord Jesus. Has everybody that desires to be served been served anyone at all need cup I'm going to pray over both of these elements and at the end I want us to take them together if you don't know Christ the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that he is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead you can be saved in this cup is a symbol of His blood that washes away sin. and you, It's a symbol. You need to ask for Him to really do with your sin what we're about to do with this cup. Let the blood of Christ wash my sins away. I can't do that for you. You have to call upon Him yourself. Would you call upon Him right now? Father, I pray for the wayward believer in this room today, the one that has known you in the past, but something has gotten in between their relationship with you or another a brother or sister I just pray you you come into that moment right now that they invite you into that grievance that they invite you into that grudge and that your spirit begins to do the work for that person here Lord who may have never known you as Savior they've, they've never called upon you today they say I want to be a part of that revolution that's a cause I can give my life for I want to sign that covenant. I want, to, I want to join with my life today, Father, as they call upon you. As they confess you as Lord. As they repent of their sin. And say, and they cry out to you, would you respond to their cry today, Lord? And Father, would you come running to them in grace. And let their first act as a believer. 
seconds after calling upon Jesus as Lord, may they, may they commit themselves to the revolution by taking in the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. God, will you bless this bread as we take it and remind us of the community that we must share with you and each other? Would you bless the cup to us today as we take the cup? May we be reminded of the cost of following Christ. May we look at this differently today and forevermore every time we come to the table. Use our lives, the frailty and the brokenness, to start a revolution. In Jesus' name, amen. Take the bread and then the cup. Take the cup. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I'm all in, Father. Holding nothing back. I'm yours. I'm all in, Jesus. Take my life. Spend it as you please. I'm your currency, Lord. Spin me. Would you stand with me all over this place? Time has gotten away from us today. I wish we had an hour to respond right now, but we don't. Lord, thank you. Would you accelerate what you're doing in our hearts we, get, we need to go bless John Michael and Tiffany in the back and make room for the next group of people to come into this service but I pray in our hurry that we don't hurry past the sacredness of what you're doing in our hearts use us as revolutionaries to impact our world and our families in the coming days Father will you bless them and keep them Will you make your face shine down upon them? Will you be gracious to them? Will you turn their, your countenance their direction and give them peace? In Jesus' name, amen. The altars are open. God bless you.